Let's get practical. What I'd like to do in this last session is get as down to the brass tacks as I can. And I'd like to, uh, to start by talking a little bit about the kinds of communities we want to have as we think about technology. Now, one, one way we can see our children is that they're amateurs. Our children are amateurs at the art of living life. And it, it takes a lot of resources, it takes a lot of work to produce a functioning adult. It takes a lot of preparation, it takes a set of marketable skills, it takes some patterns of relating, some habits and practices, it takes spiritual community, and it takes that elusive spiritual sensitivity to the things of God and God's people make what we consider a functioning result. And the more I parent, um, the more I see others parent, the more I realize that functioning adults don't just happen by accident. I just mean that it's not an accident that functioning adults emerge from certain communities and certain families. And the opposite here is it's true as well. It's not an accident when people who have struggled with life emerge from certain families and certain communities. Don't get me wrong, I don't want to be too rigid here. But it's no accident. Now, Gary Miller, um, the author in his book, Surviving the Text Tsunami, he describes four kinds of perspective. And he tried in his book to evaluate the, the environments that are created in these cultures and the kinds of young people and young adults that tend to emerge from them. First, he considers what he calls the permissive church. This church is focused on the felt needs of the congregation and the felt needs of speakers. But there's not a lot of attention given to the hard work of application as a community. The second kind of church, the regulated church, tends to take the approach of just say no. The difficulty that Gary notices with this kind of church is that there's almost zero exposure to children or poor children to technology. And then at some kind of age, as they begin to mature into adults, they go from zero exposure to total immersion. From zero to total immersion in a very short span of time. Because the reality here is that information technology, uh, unless we're really going to cloister up hard, Information technology is it's everywhere. It's ubiquitous, we say. It's so easily accessible. And uh, unless we're willing to consider some kind of total withdrawal from society and culture, we're going to have to access it. We're going to have to reckon with it. And to just say no might work for a while, but then there tends to be some kind of switch in that transition that carries over. It's really difficult for those churches. There's the third kind of church, the intellectual church. There may be at this church a strong emphasis on good sermons, and there are good sermons with a strong educational program. What Gary is afraid of for these churches is that there's a disconnect between Sunday morning programming and what's actually happening on the ground. He tells the story of a pastor in a church there, but the young person rather, who's talking about his church leadership. And he, he, he's kind of distressed as a young person because he's recognizing that the life that he and other young people are living are nowhere near the ideals that are presented Sunday after Sunday during the services. And he's not sure what to do about that. He's not sure whether the, 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 the sermons, whether the, the applications that are being made on Sunday mornings are actually connected. So, what Gary suggests is a fourth approach, and he calls this the dynamic church. The dynamic church. What Gary finds is that young people who are um, successfully navigating their tech, factory 
They're not withdrawing entirely. But neither are they just getting a lot of good ideas. Neither are they just getting permission. They, um, they have some things in common, these young people. And what they have in common are things like relationships with older members in their congregation who are engaged with them. They're able to have with people outside their age group engaged and interested in transparent relationships. These communities where these young people are at, they tend to have churches that are prayerfully working together to bring themselves together and line up the teaching they receive, the positions they take on issues, and yes, even regulations to make it possible for these amateurs, these young people, to grow up and develop their adults. So four kinds of churches. And there's, there's always a risk in trying to nail this down too rigidly, and I don't want to do that, but what I think Gary does for us here is gives us a helpful perspective. And my point is to transition us in this final message into action, and this is where we're going to end these meetings. Like Ezra puts it in uh, Ezra 8.21, we too, like the people to whom he was writing, we are seeking a right way for us. We're seeking a right way for us and for our little ones. This is what the Church of Christ is instructed and authorized to do, to seek the right way. So, like it or not, here we are, we're living through this information revolution. And like I said yesterday, revolutions are disruptive times. This revolution, like others, brings with it chaos. It brings with it uncertainty. It brings with it disruption, where old ways of thinking and living are torn down and new ones are being thrown up quickly. The digital revolution has happened quickly. But we quickly forget. My concern here is that we could adopt technology very quickly without enough reflection. What we need is more than just consistent permissiveness, it's exaggerated regulation, or just thoughtful preaching to get us to where we need to go. So what I'll do um, is identify three pillars that make up our communities, that make up our churches. Three pillars, home, work, and faith. And within each of these three pillars, we'll be sampling how information technology relates to them. We'll be looking at two issues per pillar. So, let's talk about home and technology. So with the, with the digital revolution, with the information revolution that we're living in, we are forced to make choices that our parents never had to make. Choices like how much screen time is okay for a child, what sort of content is okay for a child. We have to deal with it if we're going to have screens in our home. Now, I'm observing that as my generation of parents makes choices about this, we're coming out of different places. I don't think so. We're just working our way through this. My claim here is that I don't think it's baseless to claim that, especially in the first three years of a child's life, technology, information technology, has no real benefit. It has no real benefit, but it does have the possibility of lasting harm. If this is true, you can ask the question, why do parents expose children, especially in these first three years, to technology? I think maybe we do this because of two beliefs. We think that technology could be educational, or we think that it's relaxed, or if it's not relaxing, at least distracting. In other words, we believe that children are learning, or we need them to be distracted so we can do what we want to do as adults. Many times, technology is just 
Let's talk a little bit about education. There's a lot of technology products available to us that claim to have some kind of educational benefit. There's baby Einstein, there's leapfrog, there's super kids. There are countless apps you can download for your smartphone, and they're going to so capture your child's attention that they can't help but learn. They come with taglines like the program developed thinking literacy and numeracy skills using proven visual learning techniques in reading and writing kids' ratio that are given what strengthens word recognition, vocabulary, comprehension, and written expression. It sounds like a lot. The reality is, the reality is that uh, screen time is not a replacement for engagement. Screen time is not a replacement for engagement. Time spent behind screens distracts a child from the real tasks that they have. It distracts them from the things they need to be prioritizing. And that looks like this. It looks just like engaging the world around them. Getting into the world they have, ordering it, experimenting with it, making sense of their relationships and their place in the world, and developing physical strength. Now, our three-month-old baby, Paris, if he didn't receive those awesome, and I mean that word seriously, awesome, if he didn't receive those awesome exchanges of intimate, uninterrupted face time, and I don't mean the app, if he didn't receive that time of uninterrupted face time, he's going to turn out very differently. And if she does, a toddler, as she grows playing patty, is learning the rules of exchange that happen in speech. Your turn. My turn. Your turn. My turn. This is what patty takes to do. A child who is measuring and pouring, doing what we call container play, is building the mental scaffolding that they're going to need later for algebra. The concern is that screen time is replacing real time. The 49% of children estimated in our culture to receive more than two hours of screen time per day, and the 16% who are receiving over four hours of screen time per day are being deprived. They're being deprived. When we offer screens and place of physical experience, we're not offering these children an equal trade. Young minds and bodies behind the screens are deprived of the preparatory work they're going to need to develop into functioning adults. These colorful flashcards on screens with voiceover and sexy jingles with birthday cakes and their digital flash and their awards they don't actually hold a candle to pack it. In fact, in fact, what um, is being suggested is that the screens and the amount of screen time, especially looking at this crowd that are getting more than four hours a day, that kind of screen time is actually contributing to the kind of attentional and relational problems like ADD and the lack of empathy that seem to be epidemic in our culture. Educational sells itself, educational software sells itself on the idea that it can educate our children. But, but learning is something that our children do. Learning is something our children do. And it's not something that technology can do for them. Play is not something our children do so they can burn off energy to get to the real business of academic learning, although you can't do that. Play for young children is one of the most important learning experiences they have. That full spectrum of learning which gets at all domains of their development, mind, heart, and body. 
what I'm suggesting here is that we put aside the fruit-flavored eye tablet to be the Einstein. Give yourself an old pool shed. Give them a garden. Give them cousins and friends and age people in blocks and books. Listen to them. Watch them. Interact with them. And have patience. It's going to take some time. So we can't substitute technology for education. We can't either use it as a teacher. When um, Elia, our oldest child, was about uh, four years old, I think, he needed some dental work. And it was the kind of dental work you can't just get done at the local dentist office. You had to travel a little bit, and it was going to be uncomfortable. <clears throat> what the what the just a little bit is that when we went to the dental office, at a regional children's hospital, a really great hospital, the approach to getting this done went on something kind of like this. So there's the waiting room, of course. You go back into the room where she's going to be medicated. They give her a little cup of medicine that was at least supposed to help make the experience a more manageable. She takes the medicine, and then there was a screen that was on this nice extending arm, kind of like one of those lights, little screen that they took, and there was really cartoons going on in there. They turn the screen on, give her the medicine, and take the screen and put it no less than three inches away from her face. Okay? And I can understand why they need to do this. I'm not faulting the medical personnel for this. They have to work with what they get. I know that. And I know that I'm expecting too much of a child to expect that four-year-old child to have a level of self-control that an adult would. But what's going on here? Here's the point. When we deprive our children of the experiences where they're going to learn skills of self-control, of self-regulation in the face of what is a really scary kind of situation, when we deprive them of that or deprive them of the experience of me as a parent going through a tough experience with my child and put a screen and some drugs in place of that, again, I understand but uh, we deprive them of that, it's not going to be an easy trade. What they're going to learn in the place of self-control and self-regulation is some form of addiction. So I'm suggesting that um, instead of trying to keep our sanity up during that long road trip by using some screens at least persistently, and the name, perhaps, is getting through that reception at the wedding where we flip the child a phone to school and listen of getting our child through that really difficult dentist appointment. Oh, when we do that, when we do that consistently, we are having a cumulative effect on how the child is going to turn out. And that effect is going to deprive the child of that growing ability to regulate their own behavior, to regulate their emotions, and sometimes simply to just sit still. This is hard work. I know that. What these abilities of self-moderation, of self-control actually forecast is that they, they give us a picture of how the child is going to function when they become an adult. Right? This isn't something that just happens automatically. It's something that's formed. When we deprive a child of that, I'm suggesting that we deprive them of something that's actually very valuable. So it would really excite me. It would interest me to see a church covenant which declares something like, our children will not be deprived of the ability to self-control. So, in an act of worship, we will limit their exposure to mindless Digital distraction when it's convenient for us as parents. They will not fall prey to the merely amusing. So, how do we prepare our children for the digital age? First, we can resist the illusion that any media touting, flashing, blinking, noise saturated educational 
software actually has a real marriage. Children are going to learn best by cooking. They're going to learn best by family games, by shopping, by travel, by measuring and weighing, by following directions. And the next time you're on a road trip, which I'm going to be uh, living in the East direction here shortly, the next time you're on a road trip, resist the convenience of distraction. Build a lifestyle around satisfying experiences that aren't penetrated always by media. And this is the kind of lifestyle which I think child and parent alike are ultimately going to find the most satisfaction. That's the pillar of family. That's what the pillar of work. You can look at Genesis 2 for this. Genesis 2, in a lot of ways, expands on the creation story of Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, God creates humankind, He places them in the garden, and in this garden, this is the place where it's, it's where they're going to develop, where they're going to form into God's image bearer. This is what God wants us to do. He wants us to be His representatives in the world. And as God's representatives, humankind in Genesis 2 has work to do. They have work to do. And they're defined meaning and satisfaction in their work. I'll suggest two ways in which this information age in which we live can disrupt the kind of satisfaction we find and should find in our work. The first way is through fragmentation. The lose their sense of meaning in our work through fragmentation. As computers have gotten more and more and more powerful, and this is happening really fast, they're getting so powerful, as they become more powerful, they've developed the ability to run more than one program at the same time. We take it for granted now, but it used to be that computers could only run one, pro- run one program at the same time. Now my five-year-old phone it can run 10, 15, 20 programs, more, all simultaneously. And a bunch of them are just kind of working along in the background. And this isn't even coming in any cost. It hasn't even slowed down. Um, now, I do have to say, unless I just think I'm putting myself on a pedestal, pretending that my phone is five years old, uh, I've had to remind myself a good many times in the past month that this old phone with its ability to multitask 15, 20 programs simultaneously, it's actually doing really well in that, that Pixel 4a that's been calling to me. I probably don't need it. So until the familiar phone really lets me down, I have no good reason to replace it. So just a word there. I felt the itch and it burns sometimes. But going back to the well uh, in the workplace, as our computers have gotten more powerful, we've needed bigger screens. Sometimes multiple screens. In my office, I have two. I know some people who have six screens. Just to keep up with the number of programs that are simultaneously running. Just to keep up with the kind of information that's being thrown at them. We've had to give this ability of our computer to run multiple tasks simultaneously a name. We called it multitasking. We called it multitasking. It's what computers can do. And multitasking isn't so bad when the tasks that we have running are all clustered together. When we're switching tasking back and forth between activities of the same sort. Between, say, email, a phone call, and then purchasing on a website, all for the same project. Okay, that, that's not so bad. But often, what we've noticed, what often what multitasking actually means is just random jumping between totally disorganized and totally unrelated tasks. And this is where it becomes a problem. We can go from 
project A that we're working on, the price line, just to see how tickets are doing for that trip we've been thinking about, the Wisconsin, uh, over to personal email to check in on that. Well, I've got two emails over there, but I can't read them. I should be working. So then from there, we bounce back over to our work email, and then from there to Project B for a little while, and then to Drudge Report for a minute. And then, um, well, we don't have any reason for it. But this is frequently how it actually works. Then a friend might call in and break the runaway cycle. Why, why do we do this? Why do we do this? It's hard to get exact numbers here, but the estimates say that the average office worker checks his or her email 30 times every hour. Okay? Smartphones, on average, are picked up about 1,600 times per week. It's far more frequent if this person is what we call a power user, somebody who lives a lot of their life in the digital arena of a smartphone, and it can be less. The average visit on a website is just 10 to, or sorry, 10 to 20 seconds. And that 10 to 20 seconds is typically enough that's all it takes to take in the average of 20% of text that people actually read when they visit a website. It's a picture of fragmentation. It's a picture of shattered attention. And the reality here is, even though we're driven to do this, and even though our computers can do this, we can't multitask. The reality is simply that we can't multitask. We can only switch between tasks. We have only one attention to really give. The light of the body is the eye, not the eye. There is one. There's one attention to give. Why does this matter? Why does our attention multitask matter? Here's my heart on this. The enemy of simplicity is multiplicity. The enemy of simplicity is multiplicity. The vision of mental, of financial, of physical and spiritual energy, that vision is spreading of it. And simplicity is displaced from our life. It kind of floats right out of our life. Not because of things which many times are openly sinful, but because of the many things that we try to do simultaneously, which in and of themselves may be harmless. It may even be good. The problem is that in our, in our trying to participate in all of these good and harmless things simultaneously, when we try to do them all at once, we lose our ability of simplicity. So Jesus directs his caution against disciples who would follow him if it uh, weren't for just the new land that they purchased or to buy for burying their father. I don't, I don't think these things are necessarily wrong. It's just that there were multiplicities. There were pushing these disciples toward multiplicity. What I'm suggesting is that in multiplicity, in multi-tasking, what we're doing is educating ourselves. We're forming ourselves in certain ways against the power of simplicity. And technology helps us with this. It fragments us. So, against fragmentation, we need to resist that urge to switch between tasks for no good reason. We need to learn to resist that information itch, that uh, crawling sensation to gain information that isn't actually going to change the decisions that we really need to make. That just there satisfies some kind of craving or longing. We need to resist the urge to favor our buzzing, ringing, dinging, chirping device over the people who are actually present with us. We need to resist that urge before a meeting starts and we thought, 
five, maybe ten minutes, and we're just kind of going to burn a little bit of time. So how come all of the devices? There's people. There are people around us. We can resist the urge to pull out the device to work on that, and instead, with simplicity, with that single eye, actually attend to the circumstances that are around us. And I'm suggesting that the more we do this, the more we attune to the things that are actually around us, and the less distracted we are, the more satisfaction we're actually going to gain from the world that God gives us. The second way in which technology affects our work is in what I'll call meaning, or cause and effect. So I said that God created humankind to find meaning in their work. How does this come about? How do we find meaning in our work? Well, very practically, the reason we work is to meet needs. We want the work to meet needs. We don't work to make money. Although, you frequently feel that way. And you ladies, you don't work just to save money. We work to do things like feed our children, to keep them warm, to bring their minds and their hearts alive. These are the kinds of things that really satisfy us. And the more that we can observe the connection between our work and the meeting of the needs of the people that we care about and love, I think the more satisfaction we gain. Uh, again, I, I said that I'm an information worker. This is the world that I'm in constantly, is in the world of ideas and information. I sometimes tell people that uh, what I do for a living is I arrange colorful shapes on a screen. And when I arrange enough shapes in the right order, Gas comes through a pipe in the ground, and it keeps my house and my family warm. So when my, my children ask me how the house stays warm, what I can tell them is, I could say to them, well, I arrange colorful shapes on a screen. And when I put enough of them in the right order, gas comes through a pipe in the ground, and it keeps it warm. I realized I wasn't going to be satisfied with that. This wasn't going to be a very gratifying way for me to tell my children how they stay warm in the winter. So I'm suggesting here is um, that meaning can work looks more like this. This is a simple instrument, isn't it? It's not very abstract. And it connects me to meaning. It's one way that uh, I can connect the work that I do as an information worker. I can use all of that kind of work that I can get, right? But uh, it, gives me, it gives me a chance to actually connect to a kind of work that's more significant and meaningful. It closes the gap for me between the action that I take and the need that I meet. So now we burn about four or five cores of wood a year. And uh, in addition to getting to cut a lot of that wood, I got to split it in a small dust, quite a lot of heat. Um, by the time it gets up to the fireplace, it, it passed through my hands three or maybe four times. That's meaningful. That's a connection between the kind of work that I do and the needs that I need. When I, I see my children warming themselves by that fire, by that fire I know that I have a rule to play in that. That link between the action that I've taken and the sense of satisfaction that I get, I've been closed. The more we widen that gap, the more we spread out the work that we're doing, like arranging colorful states, and the action that actually comes down, the more we widen that, often in the name of convenience, I'm suggesting that we deprive ourselves of meaning and work with maybe meaningful. That's work. Let's look at the class door of faith, of our faith. Now, our tradition, the, the Anabaptist tradition, it, it, it values ethics. It values ethics. It's bent toward making choices and following through on them. 
And that's what ethics is going to be needed if we're going to follow through on our commitment on, on keeping that non-resistance. Non-resistance isn't going to happen without some choice, and sometimes without some difficulty. So I'll talk briefly here and close with two ways in which life in the information age affects our beliefs, affects our faith, and we zero in particularly here on non-resistance. There's other things we could talk about here, but uh, this is one where I think there's been a significant effect. The first way that affects our belief, and especially say our belief in non-resistance, is through the kind of content we have access to. Technology allows us to stand by as bystanders to incredible violence. We can gain something of a thrill from the violence of saving private crime, of zero dark thirty, of black hawk down, or maybe just the news. That's all we need. And we can stand by and we can gain a little sensation of excitement from that. So maybe that's not enough. We don't actually have to stand by anymore. We can jump right up and we can live through our fingertips some of those most violent moments of human history. Things like Call of Duty. Or we can imagine ourselves in an arena in a fight to death with some of our friends and thinking about games like League of Legends, Fortnite, PUBG. All of these are present in our communities. I suggest that Participation in the standing by and watching content like this does have an effect. Our faith is transmitted by our heroes, by our stories, by our traditions. And what, what technology here has done is it, it's brought right into reach, it's brought right to our fingertips new stories, new heroes, new impulses to live out. When we celebrate the violent success of, say, Sylvester Stallone over the terrorists, we are instructed how to solve problems. A hero is born. When the script of the games that we play hit us in deadly conflict with other people, we begin to live this way. And we begin to lose touch with the reality that those who lose their lives will save them. We have access to endless variety of competing stories, of competing heroes, of competing scripts on which to live our lives, and we have access to them in the palm of our hands. We have on our smartphones now what previously could only be seen and experienced in a theater or maybe a call of scene. We have in our communities, in our faith, too, the challenge of what I'll call morality. What do you think of? What do you think of when I say morality and the internet in any second? I'm going to suggest here that um, we too narrowly define morality when we talk exclusively with it about technology in relation to pornography. This deals only with the content. A man who uses technology to view pornography is doing something immoral. What I'm suggesting is that the demoralizing effect of technology occurs long before a man flies off the rails into a train wreck of pornographic addiction. Well, that certainly is immoral. That demoralizing effect is something that takes place long before that. An example, uh, I was the, the dean of men at Faith Order for a year. Um, once I caught two of the fellows there indulging in a YouTube marathon in the public lounge. They were loud. They were distracting the other students who were actually trying to study. And I approached them and I asked them what, what they were doing. Well, they were watching Tom and Jerry, and just one after the other, they kept on going and going, and I had to approach them. And their response to me was, it's not against the handbook. 
right? Because you haven't spelled it out. So you can't watch YouTube marathons in the public lounge. It wasn't against the rules. And they were right about that, but it was still wrong. It was still wrong. They were demoralizing themselves. They were instructing themselves how to deal with their stress by avoiding it. And they weren't taking any kind of creative action. They were falling prey to the merely amusing. And this tendency, or this tendency to amuse ourselves with technology has a moral effect long before it's become outright pornographic. And what that means is that we learn to be passive in the face of sometimes stressful and sometimes difficult situations in which we actually find ourselves. And this is the moral problem of technology. It just makes everything so easy. And you can't fault it for that. This is what technology is supposed to do. It makes things easy. But the problem here is that hard stuff, hard things, and sometimes stressful things, are actually constructive. When we go through difficult things, and it's not automatic, but when we go through difficult things and we navigate them, we build moral capital. When we did hard stuff as children, our parents said to us things like, that'll build character. And they were right. We were depositing moral character into this bank of moral ability, which would later allow us to do things like say yes and say no, and then actually follow through. And this could be the moral legacy of technology. But the legacy in which people are distracted, in which they avoid stressful or painful things, and become immoral, but maybe not yet pornographic. And I suggest that a belief like non-resistance is going to be difficult to actually see where the heroes in the stories are violent, and the way to deal with life and our difficult situations is just to amuse ourselves and to avoid them. Let's talk about redemption. That's a sampling of issues, okay? I'm feeling a little bit overwhelmed. I do sometimes. Truth be told, the jury here is still hung. Uh, it remains still to be seen. It remains to be seen whether our capacity to deal with the information revolution and the challenges that it's throwing up to us remains to be seen if our capacity to deal with this is going to keep pace with the technological change we face. And there's not some kind of one-size-fits-all solution here. But uh, admittedly, not everything I see is encouraging. So what shall we do? Well, here we are. We're building church. We're building community. We are seeking the right way for us and for our little ones. And this is, again, what the Church of Christ is instructed and authorized to do. So I'll leave you with this. That our ability to discriminate can be redeemed. Our ability to make choices about technology can be redeemed. And um, we can learn to use technology in ways that allow us to dominate it, rather than being guided and dominated by it. So there's two ways in which we can learn to use technology. And I don't think either one of these two ways is complete, but we're going to have to find some lively combination of these two, and then we can find a way forward. So, the first way we can deal with technology and challenges is to avoid it. We can avoid it. Following the Christianization of Rome back in the 4th and 5th centuries, or 5th and 6th, I suppose, uh, the pressure of persecution which had faced the church very quickly evaporated. The problem shifted from survival to dealing with the thousands of people who were flocking into the churches because it was now a fashionable thing to do. And there was a group of people in the churches, we, we call them the Desert Fathers who were afraid that this shift in how the kind of practice the church was facing, they were afraid that this shift 
would demoralize the church. They were afraid that the church would lose its strength and its vigor, which it had gained under the pressure of imperial Rome. So what the desert fathers did is they retreated from mainstream culture in the church to escape moral corruption. And they replaced persecution with disciplined life. And this is one way we can deal with technology. We can deal with it by retreating into digital deserts of our own making. So if we're not willing to do this, maybe the alternative here is not we're willing to retreat into a digital desert, we still need to be conscious and intentional. Because we do have to be partial. We have to be demanding of technology. We have to force it into submission. And where we can't do this, we should probably discard it. If your internet access offends you, walk it out and cast it from you. Or at least, if this could be potentially offensive, we can't be naive enough to think that our young children, and sometimes just as easily as old, we can't be naive enough to think that when we give them open access to totally unfiltered internet, that they won't lose themselves in a moment of weakness to a pornographic. We can't be naive enough to think that. The reality seems to be here that however much we like our willpower against information technology, against the information itch, against the signs and beats and notifications of our devices, against the allure of the openly sinful, our willpower is in fact a very limited resource. So we know we need to build a culture together as communities. We need to build a culture in which it's not openly, it's not shameful to openly confess weakness, tendencies, and even addictions. We need to build communities where there are desert places. We can enter into these desert spots to come apart into the desert place and rest a little while. We can build deserts. We can retreat from technology, and this is something we probably ought to do. We also need to be transformed. We need to be transformed. We do well to remember that you know the audience that Jesus addressed struggled to give him their undivided focus, even without smartphones. Although I think it's going to be a little harder. The people that Jesus spoke to, they divided their loyalties, they divided their eyes between family responsibilities, between economic uncertainty, even worry about plagues and pandemics. And as we deal with the challenges of our times, it's good to remind ourselves that we are only addressing new faces to what are, in fact, very old and tired out problems. There is, in fact, just a new face to old problems. So, because of this, we don't really need to find new ways to moderate our technology and use of it. We're just applying very old principles to what are, in fact, very old problems. The mature believer, again, is one who, because of practice, has sense of training to discern good and evil. The believer is like this, is someone who can discern good and evil in a variety of circumstances. We can face new challenges like technology. Maybe more importantly, this kind of believer and their discerning ability of somebody who can discern between good and evil, yes, but also the best from the good and the excellent from the permissible. This is the kind of believer who can discern where it is that the kingdom of God might be enlarged. You can discern where it is that God's will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. To be discerning like this means we need to be transformed. 
We need to be transformed. We need to bear Christ's image. We need to seek His thoughts after Him. We need to love His heart, desire His goals, shape His purpose in His community. And this takes practice. It takes the rigor and the inconvenience of a community that's committed to doing this together. So I encourage you, when you think about technology, when you think about the choices you have to make about it, what to watch, how long, what device to buy, and when to buy that device, when you come together to make difficult choices, you can ask, does this choice form me after him, or does it form me after his desires, after his impulses, after his commitments, after his allegiances? How, how is this choice? Going to transform me to bear his image, to seek his thoughts after him, to love his love, desire his goals, to change his purposes. So ask yourself as you wade into this revolutionary world that we're living in, ask yourself with one eye, with a single mind, can I enslave this technology to serve these purposes? Or will I be enslaved? Let's uh, let's pray together. These father are these are interesting times, the revolutionary times, and uh, because of that, we recognize again the challenges that we have to live in, the challenging times, the difficult choices that people before us have not made. And as we think about our children, and we think about our work and our tradition, we um, we just recognize our dependence on you. We want to live our life loving you. We want to chase after what it is you have for us, and uh, we just recognize that this isn't just going to happen by accident. So help us. Help us to love each other as we do this and give us the kind of discernment we need. We love you and we commit ourselves to you through Christ.